Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. A reminder, you can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think. You can email us at podcasts at coindesk.com with the subject line, Money Reimagined. I'm in Washington, D.C. this week at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation's annual legislative conference, which is taking place at Walter Washington Convention Center. The theme is curing our democracy, protecting our freedoms. And I am extremely grateful to be invited to participate in this event. But our topic today is much broader than that. I'm joined by Carmel Cadet, who is the founder and CEO of MTech, which is a New York-based fintech startup with the goal to rebuild central banking infrastructure for the Web3 era. Now, Carmel and I have had the opportunity to speak many times in the past, including when she was instrumental in developing the world's very first national digital currency, the Bahamian Sand Dollar, which many of you will be familiar with from discussions we've had on it on this show. That was her first big government project, but since then, she signed on six other central banks in the Caribbean and Africa and has plans to onboard more to their platform and their regulatory sandbox design offerings. I'm really looking forward to Carmel joining me today to talk about the advances in central bank digital currencies and CBDCs, particularly how they're being used by diaspora populations and how we're thinking about this opportunity and this technology in spaces that don't necessarily get the attention of groups like the Bureau of International Settlements, the BIS, or even, frankly, the U.S. government. Um, so, Carmel, welcome. Let's start off by just a little bit by way of background. Tell us, this is an interesting thing, an unusual thing uh, to have gotten so deeply engaged with. And what was the moment when you kind of realized, hey, digital currency is something really critical and important to the population? Your background, of course, you grew up in Haiti. I'd love to hear a little bit about how all that came together to make you the ambassador for this technology opportunity that you are today. Yeah, I, I never thought uh, I would I would actually play that role, but I'm happy to be here. So as you mentioned, my name is Kamal Kadad. I'm the founder and CEO of MTech. It started really with my story. I'm, I'm originally from Haiti, born and raised. And when I migrated to the U.S., I became fascinated by the concept of financial markets, the access to credit cards, the access to mortgage and car loans and student loans, and realized that how access to capital and access to money really impacts lives. So when you think about helping people out of poverty, it's one thing to do aid, but it's another thing to really build a better infrastructure that are more long-term, better institutions, and better access to financial markets, more importantly. 
So I was really curious about that, but I didn't know what to do about it at the time I was 17. So my mom told me to go to school and get a job. In the meantime, you know, as I figure it out, but sure enough, I did my, my background is in corporate finance. I ended up lending. Um, but before that, I, I really, my, one of my first job was as a teller at a, at a credit union. This is kind of one of those jobs you get to see how people experience money kind of day-to-day, paycheck to paycheck, every Friday, every two Fridays, people kind of have a, a different experience and how their lives are changed with the fact that they get paid. Or sometimes when they lose their job, as far as how that impacts their lives. Then I got into mortgage underwriting, got to see how the credit system works in the US. How do you provide credit? How do you buy houses? How do you get home equity lines of credit? And how do you build value and invest in other properties? I've seen so many different lives changed by financial services. Yet again, I did not know what to do about it, but I landed an internship at IBM. I spent 10 years at IBM. This is where I fell in love with technology. So marrying the two, fast forward to around 2017, IBM was launching the IBM blockchain division. For me, I heard about blockchain before I heard about Bitcoin, believe it or not. The ability to use a technology that really flattens out the intermediaries or the models that you get access to financial services is something that I really, really get excited about because a lot of the policies over the years have changed the makeup of the financial industry in a lot of emerging markets. If you think about Basel III, if you think about the de-risking out of a lot of countries, I've seen the results of that, um, kind of how more and more people in emerging markets did not have access to banking services. And that impacted my family That impacted how we sent money and how much it costs us to send money back home. And the idea of using technology, I got to see that from IBM. IBM builds just amazing, big technology that impacts the world so much so that you don't even feel it. You don't even see IBM everywhere, but IBM runs just about everything that we run on and that we use. I fell in love with that concept and blockchain for me was the first technology that really made sense for me for how to do that. So the very simple concept that um, ignited my curiosity to go into this space is to say, you know, we've been waiting for the banks to bank the unbanked. This is something that different policies and different, you know, efforts have tried to drive. And even if you think about um, Senator Sherrod Brown um, bill around Fed dollar accounts, the idea of forcing the banks to provide a digital cash or a Fed dollar account to unbanked users or low deposit holders, it was a, a dead on arrival type of proposal because commercial banks would never have the incentive to do something like this. And the fact that I worked at a retail bank and a commercial bank, I understood the business model uh, very clearly. So what blockchain represented for me was really an idea. What if we take the most used asset that people use every day and trust every day, especially those in emerging markets, which is paper cash, what if we digitize it with blockchain? Could we provide financial inclusion by design? And having people be part of a digital financial service infrastructure that could be built on and give them an access to a new world. And that's around the time where I got the opportunity. I saw the RFP from Central Bank of Bahamas. Um, and of course, being from the Caribbean, I got super excited. I cannot tell you. I remember the first time reading that RFP when Central Bank of Bahamas said that they're looking for a blockchain solution to modernize their overall payment infrastructure to drive financial inclusion across seven different 100, 700 islands that make up the Bahamas. I don't think most people know that. It seems like one island is 700 islands. So that was that was the moment for me. And sure enough, we the, with no architecture, with no reference at the time. 
me and my team at IBM got together, found partners to work with, and really pitched an idea that the Central Bank of Bahamas ended up really selecting and has now deployed. And I just came back from the CBDC conference in Istanbul, where they were presenting their efforts and their progress. And I think they're one of the shining stars. Yeah, well, I would agree. And in part, because they were the first, in part, because to your point, it really was about inclusion by design, not just laying over, I use this example a lot, the way that roads were built in Boston and Cambridge is they just saw where the cows were walking and laid down concrete, basically, right? Or whatever was used at the time, paving. And and I think the Center of the Bahamas did not do that. Their goal was actually to create a system that was better in some ways, not just digitize the existing system. And I do think we've seen some other efforts at CBDCs really just digitizing existing systems without interrogating those systems in the way that I think you and the bank did. But I, I have about a million directions we could go. Well, let's start with let's start with this because it, it would be interesting. Actually, I could see how you'd be interested in something like a Bitcoin or something like that. Instead, the idea of paper cash was the most compelling thing to you. Can you just talk about how a how you see CBDCs playing out in the broader digital currency landscape, but also why that? Like why fiat? Right? Like why your approach focusing on that specific opportunity as opposed to the broader, let's say, you know, crypto opportunity or even state. Yeah. I mean, as we were, so ended up in the IBM blockchain division, um, looked at blockchain and different use cases. So global trade, food provenance, and different application of technology. When it came to financial services, of course, Bitcoin was the first use case that really gained uh, broad visibility and broad access and even fame, if you will, as a token. But in itself, what we continue to see is one, the learning curve on how to get into Bitcoin. I remember how proud I was when I heard there. my first Oh, call. yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, what do I have to do? What now? <laughs> um, sure enough, I was on maternity leave at the time. So I was on maternity leave watching Bitcoin videos. And okay, then- On YouTube, let me guess. Of on course. YouTube, of course. <laughs> As one does, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up sending my first Bitcoin and figure out my key. And as I stand today, believe it or not, I have token somewhere that I probably, I lost my private key to. I really don't know where it is right now. So when you think about the practicality, as I was going through the experience, I try to imagine how I'm going to tell my mom this. And when I when I um, testified in front of Congress, I have the mom test that I usually refer to, right? It's like, can I tell my mom to do this? And if I can't, and she's more interested, she has more of a, an interest to even try things with me. If I can't convince her to do this, then we have a bigger problem. Then started rethinking about what problem are we really trying to solve, right? I know the 2008 global recession and, and kind of the shock into the system really made people mad about financial markets, about financial services, about how finance works. But also, what is the alternative, right? What Do we have a better alternative? So for me, that's always been the question. What problem are we trying to solve? And is our solution better to what we have today? Cash for me is whether we like to admit it or not, it is a single asset that the moment something goes wrong anywhere else, we're trying to cash out into. If a bank is failing, lines out the door, give me my cash. And if FTX is crumbling, cash me out. I'll take bank deposits, but if it's SVB, I'll take cash. Yeah. That, that, that structure of financial market, I think it's something that we, we always took for granted. And I think even four years into this space, I was just on a call now kind of thinking about the education that we really need to continue to do around the role of public money and how it differs from private money. People really don't think about that. When it comes to stable coins, when it comes to different forms of deposit or tokenized assets, 
realizing that there's a difference between a private entity um, balance sheet and the risk that comes with that, the counterparty risk that comes with that versus the likelihood of a central bank failing. Now, not to say a central bank can fail, depending on where you are in the country, people would argue my central bank has failed, right? But for the most part, the idea of the structure of it is to provide that riskless, that public money, an anticipation that, yes, we provide a regulatory framework for a private sector to exist, to provide financial services that we want to users. That's what the two-tier model is all about. But should we have a backstop? And for me, I although I believe in crypto, I love the idea of introducing more assets that are more accessible to people to create wealth, to invest in. They can learn about the risk in the same way you invest in a really risky stock or a really safe stock you thought at the time and the company tank because the executive is, I don't know, kind of, you know, doing all kind of nonsense. And then, you know, the stock price dies, right? That happens. I think it's a matter of education and understanding the difference between those asset classes. Mm-hmm. But the role of cash does not get replaced. And the second thing that happened, I have, I have this theory that we really messed up Bitcoin. I don't somewhere along the line, when you think of when you read the paper as far as really being able to to serve as digital cash, cash is not traded the way it is today and speculative the way it is today. So the moment that took off, there was no putting the genie back in the box. It was a matter of being pragmatic and say, are we going to leave billions of people behind that use cash every day and that we could reinvent, we could make better, we could build for it to be safer, faster? in a more digital world. And yes, big conviction on my side on using blockchain technology, Web3 enablement, distributed ledger, tokenization, smart contracts to make it a really, really good assets that can be used more broadly. Um, yeah. Or, so I or love this. Yeah. On that. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this idea of really, you know, starting with the problem. What's the problem we're trying to solve? And I think the problem for whom, right? So one thing people will say to me, oh, you know, crypto, what's the use case? What's the, I'm like, well, I'm not sure crypto has value to someone in a super stable economy without volatility in the currency, that hyperinflationary you know, situation, those kinds of things. I don't know. But in other places of the world where that is a reality, it has immediate and obvious value. So it depends on the context you're examining it in. So I, I love that you're anchored on how do we help this gigantic swath of people of the world's population that is an environment where it is immediately obvious why digitized cash is going to be helpful. Now, one thing I will say, I do... I. I want to push back slightly on the idea that cash, the value of it, I mean, that's what FX markets are about, right? Is like arbitraging differences in cash value. And there's a whole gigantic market around currency exchanges. And so I think there that we do see trading that happens in cash. But to your point, you know, the use of cash as a means of payment, et cetera, is pretty robust and sticky as a concept. And I think the joke is always, you know, if cash didn't exist, no one would invent it. But hey, it, it does exist. And so that's the world that we're in. Now, my own mom test on this podcast, hi, mom, is would my mother understand all these background concepts we're talking about? So let's go a little bit into wholesale versus retail CBDCs. How are you focused on these, the difference? Because I think there is still a perception not held by you, mom. I know you know better than this. But some people think that the money in the bank is their money, right? And they don't understand that it's the bank's money. What is that? Just emotionally, you think, well, that's my money. Maybe just walk through that for some of our listeners who may not quite have internalized the reality of commercial money and central bank money and that kind of thing. 
Oh man, you want me to tell mom that it's not her money? <laughs> <laughs> she knows, she knows. We've had that conversation many times, <laughs> but for others, others, oh, mom like folks. <laughs> it is a really good question. I mean, so the way the financial system kind of, when you take a step back and peel the onion, the way the financial system has been designed and which is broadly a model accepted and used around the world is that the central bank as a public entity um, has the legal mandate from the government to create a sovereign currency, sovereign money. However, it does not have the legal mandate to offer broad financial services and access to the economy, and it doesn't have the mandate to issue at will. Although some people think that the Fed kind of issues at will, they don't have to, they have to have certain checks that, you know, certain macroeconomic dynamics that would either force lower interest rate, higher interest rate, and it's not kind of like, you know, just printing money at will. But the idea is when you have a growing economy, commerce and access to capital are things that essentially central banks and also kind of financial regulators have defined over time for private entities to create private capital. And what that means is if they have $1 in a bank, the regulator would say, if you have the right capital, uh, if you have the right management team, the right risk management team, the right compliance team, and so on, you check somebody regulated. will give you a license for you to probably issue $9 against the one that you have. And that $9 is usually what is used in the typical economy. And yes, it is technically your money. It's your, it's your bank account. It's assigned to you. It is insured according to the, you know, under the FDIC. Those things have happened over time. But is it is also the private institutions own capital that they have issued on their own balance sheet, on their own prowess and their own ability to manage risk. So that's why some entities can issue 20 to $1 versus 3 to $1. JP Morgan is very different from a typical credit union, if you will. So how they manage your capital and so on. So that to that point, I would say this is why you have the federal government had put insurance against loss because the money that you have in your bank account technically could be wiped off if the financial institution where you parked it is bankrupt. And the government is trying to provide some cushion to say, here's some insurance in case you lose up to that amount, the government will cover you, but everything else you can lose. And people yeah. really don't realize it because who has the average above $250,000 and is sitting in the bank somewhere, right? So no, no one really has to think about that, but that's how it works. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And so it, for, for more on this, if people are interested, we did an episode that touched on some of these things when we talked about Silicon Valley Bank and what was happening there and government bailouts and FDIC limits and all that kind of thing. But going back to MTech and your project, so you're not focusing on commercial, this kind of bank money, commercial money. You're looking at the central bank digital currency itself. So that the government money you know, that's issued. And so let's talk a little bit more about that. A couple of things. Number one, the Bahamas. Well, you know, you, you rang the bell, so I'm going to go there, which is that's also the locus of the FTX meltdown and situation, right? So really interesting that we have what in the same small country, 700 islands, but still a small, small economy, small country, we have what is widely regarded as a successful CBDC project, one of the very, the first, actually, I believe, like the very first yes, um, that was actually focused on inclusion, right? But then you also have this arguably an alleged like failure of the regulator around FTX. So that has got to be, you must have some interesting points of view on, on that whole situation. Like, how is it possible that you had that situation, like this success on the one hand, and then this massive failure on the other hand in the same small 
Island Nation? I mean, I have opinions, not facts, so I'll share them. I, sure. I just want to disclose that. <laughs> but um, from a central bank perspective, I think you're you're seeing a demarcation between what a central bank's mandate is when it comes to payment and um, financial inclusion and sovereignty and monetary policy versus what other regulators, whether it's the SEC and so on, um, provide some guidance around. And this is a new this is a new space for a lot of regulators. So we work with regulators, and I can tell you there are a lot of questions that are trying to figure out what is traditional, what is new, what should we be looking at. Um, and to that end, when you have an FTX, the same way Bahamas was what I call the POC watch around the world, then I think you're seeing a an example really amplifying one, just because you're a small country does not mean that the financial markets um, have to be small because now it's a very digital world. It's a different space. People are not, you're not bound to the population of where you actually headquartered. You can be headquartered in, in Bahamas and have global reach. I mean, we haven't even, you know, we probably won't have time to touch on the impact of FTX on the African, you know, crypto mm -hmm. system, given how much they invested and funded. A lot of companies have gone belly up. So when you think about that, CBDC is a perfect example of, look, financial markets can be risky, but there is an, an important role for a central bank to continue to provide cash in the system because things like this can happen. So I have another question I want to ask, which is pivoting a bit, but talking about, speaking of the African continent, Ghana in the news, uh, actually this week, uh, just about not going so well. Uh, and so I, you know, one thing I think and talk about a lot on this show as well is just how we think about debt load. And how debt load, our episode on, on Haiti that we did last year, I think, I think it was last year, really focused on this and the legacy of debt, French colonialism, the legacy of debt, how that yoke of debt is just crushing, particularly for smaller countries and smaller economies, um, particularly for the Caribbean and for islands, but also across, across Africa. So you're working on a project, I believe, in Ghana with Central Bank there. How do you see, Les, I mean, feel free to comment on Ghana and the debt situation as a general matter, particularly when it comes to African sovereignty and sovereign nations, but also how do you see if, do you see a CBDC in a country helping playing into some of this, being a factor in helping, you know, relieve some of this massive debt burden or provide a more fluid financial system that might help alleviate some of this crushing burden that a lot of these countries face? Absolutely. I mean, one thing I get excited about uh, when it comes to Africa and just the makeup and the dynamics on, on the continent a lot of the economic you know, obstacle to economic growth, if you will, is around how do you make consumption, local consumption more vibrant? And how do you grow the local economy for people to start thinking about, one, how do they consume locally and local currency and export more to earn more foreign currency? And that requires local investment as well as a regulatory framework that can provide some guidance and can, can I also provide investors a way to look at the market and assess the market accordingly. And I think CBDC is not going to be a magic bullet, but what I'm hoping that we can do with a combination on regulatory framework. So that's why the regulatory sandbox is really important. We started, when I started MTech, I was talking about just CBDC. The reason we got into the regulatory side is because we realized that on that end, you really need a combination of policy and technology to really tackle certain uh, certain matters and certain obstacles that uh, countries are having. And to that end, I think Ghana, over the next few years, I think you're going to see emerges as having a clear vision because that's 
of course, sometimes the number one step, right? Having a clear objective of where you want to achieve and where you want to go. One of the best things I think Bank of Ghana has done is establishing a fintech innovation office. They are they are not loud, but they are kind of step-by-step step building up the building blocks. And the fintech ecosystem in Ghana loves it. Um, yeah. They understand it. They see it. There are absolutely macroeconomic factors that always get the headlines. And there are real issues, right? I mean, this morning we woke up to $33 trillion in debt for the U.S. Every country is kind of really struggling through that. So if you kind of really, you know, everything else held equal, Ghana and Africa more broadly, I think, is looking at how do we reimagine our financial markets for the future? How do we make sure that we build sustainable financial markets? How do we make sure that those financial markets service local production, more stable currency and economic growth for more exports instead of more imports? I mean, I love all of this. And I think this is exactly right. And it goes back to your point about what's the problem we're trying to solve. And if the problem is equitable, the lack of equity in financial financial ecosystem and financial markets, then I think you have to start with focusing on the problems that exist at a macro level and at a consumer level as well. And what I really admire about what, what Ghana, the Ghanaian Bank is doing, the Bank of Ghana, is A, they're hi- they've just hired some incredibly brilliant people over there who really understand this, but are thinking about the connection between those things all the time. And that's what I think you have to do to be successful in this endeavor. So uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So my very last question, unfortunately, we have to wrap is, uh, just talk to me about one thing that, that I, I've observed, be, having lived in Silicon Valley for a long time now, um, but also as I'm just here this week and talking to a bunch of the Black members of Congress about their experiences and their constituents, is it's always been tough to get funded as a woman, as a person of color, as a person who didn't go to one of like four schools, four colleges, right? It's, it's always been really tough. Um, but you are one of the few, you are venture-backed, you have done raises. I'd just love to hear about how you think about the cap table and how you think about the, I don't want to say integrity because that's too dramatic, but how you think about the consistency, I guess, and what you're trying to do and the people you want to have as part of the broader team, including on your cap table, right, as you're thinking about that. So I'd love your thoughts on that. Great question. Great question. First of all, I am very proud um, to, yes, being a Black woman and kind of solo founder as well to have raised over $10 million now from venture back and mm-hmm. cap table. I held an investor meeting after our last raise and every investor said, this is the most diverse cap table I'm part of. And mm-hmm. that for me is amazing. a bit of an honor. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Women-led funds, Africa-based funds, um, African-based funds and um, African-led funds, even in the U.S., And then our latest um, lead is Matrix Partners in India that really got interested into how can they participate and how can they make investments more structurally in Africa. And they saw our business case as something that is absolutely fundamental to the future of the continent. So we're really proud of that. But you're right. I think what you're tapping into, I'll kind of delve right into it and kind of say it. I, I feel like you want to say something that you're not saying. But I've had companies that approach me and say, you know, can we invest? And then you give us access to the central banks. Can we invest and, you know, um, get access to CBDC and, you know, go talk to the regulator for us? That for me is a path to failure. And it is not aligned with the problem that we're trying to solve. It would be absolutely counterproductive to everything that we're doing for me to land there. So I'm very proud of having investors who understand, who believe in me. Honestly, at the early stage, that's all I had. I had to convince that I could, you know, as a solo woman, and I had an investor who said that. It's like, we didn't invest the first time because we were kind of wondering, how is this woman going to take over the world of central banks? 
So now we're coming in because, you know, we're seeing like, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So very proud of that. It's all good. And I'm, and I'm very proud of, of the progress we've made. I have an amazing team too. They don't get the headlines. I'm the face of the company, but I have an amazing team backing me. And I'm very grateful for that. Oh, well, we have to wrap there, but Carmel, such a pleasure. Carmel Cadet, the CEO and founder of MTech. And, and if I may, I think these conversations are, are the conversations I love the most, but I also think it's emblematic of the approach that actually will help when we talk about inclusion and equity within these systems. And I have to say, it's quite in contrast and something that still troubles me to this day about the crypto ecosystem is I think there's still a lot of lip service given to these challenges without actually putting the skin in the game, without actually getting engagement from, whether it's thinking about the cap table, thinking about the people you have on your team, thinking about the engagement model that you have, thinking about what kind of regulation you're pushing for. So you're not gonna, you know, inclusion and equity don't happen by default, unfortunately. And the inclusion by design model that I think MTech and, and certainly many others in this space are embodying is the path forward, I think. It's the path that's going to actually help us build the more equitable and inclusive financial system and technical systems that I think everybody in the world deserves. Uh, So on that note, um, I will say goodbye for this week and join us next week again for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You're listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Today's show was edited and produced by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.